Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 345, recorded July 26th. Is that right? July 26th, 2023. I am Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And you know, 345 episodes, you'd think I wouldn't have to read that, but I still do, so I messed up. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, fun, a lot of fun topics today. Uh, we our sponsors today are us um uh, courses that talk python training we'll talk about those and the new python people podcast and our patreon supporters of course thank you everybody for continuing to support us um and uh everybody that's listening to this um usually so this is a, a wednesday morning but usually it's tuesday uh, at 11 pacific is when we're recording and if you are around at that time we'd love to have you join the show just go to pythonbytes.fm live and you can see when the next episode is going to get recorded yeah brian i usually try to i'm not always successful also sometimes i just don't know i usually try to schedule the next live stream soon as we're done with this one yeah and so if you go to youtube you can click notify me for just that event if you want to come to the next week's one or something so that's kind of the best way to know when the next live stream is yeah yeah um and i appreciate people that show up and add comments it's nice so uh michael why don't you kick us off with the first topic yes indeed this is a very very exciting one so the next topic the first topic is the third version of cython not cpython i didn't wow. drop a p on accident cython Many people know what Cython is, but I suspect sufficiently many don't that it justifies me saying what the heck it is. So Cython, uh, let's let's do a throwback, Brian. This will be fun. Um, you've done plenty of C. Do you remember inline assembler when like little sections of of C code had to be like really close to the metal, and so you would write like a little bit of assembly inside of a a C function or or make a function in assembly and call it something crazy like that. We're talking like 90s. Yeah. Well, Cython is kind of like that for Python. If you've got some part of your code that's not fast enough, well, one of the options is to do what a lot of people are doing is go like, well, I'm going to go learn Rust and then I'm going to write this section in Rust and then I'm going to import it into Python. And um, there are certainly tools for doing so, but what if you could write Python and make it as fast as C almost. And that's what Cython is. And it's kind of like this inline bit, like this function or these, this module, I need to be in like closer to C speed, farther from Python speed, especially in the math type of scenario. So that's what Cython is. It lets you write Python code that gets compiled to C and use, you know, very, very slight variations in the Python syntax. It used to be way different. You'd have to have it you know, your own types and they were imported from Cython. So instead of having a, you know, a traditional high object derived integer type, you would actually have a Cython int, which was like a local int, and you would express that in different ways. And they've been moving towards like a, what they call pure Python mode, where the code that you write for Cython is actually still valid Python if you wanted to just run it that way. And that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Yeah, that involves really things cool. like type int. So if you want to say, oh, here's a thing that's an int, instead of importing some specialized int type from Cython, you would just say x colon int. And like, guess what? That's how it works in modern Python. So the news for this week is that Cython goes 3.0. And this news comes to us from, let's see. Oh, no, I ran across this with other ones uh, sent over. They're, they're both new releases with lots of details. So sorry. 
Yeah. So anyway, this one, the, the headline here is that this is long in development as in like five years has been working on this. And so it sheds legacy Python support. That is Python 2. Look, see that legacy Python. People, nice. people are, love, are starting to adopt our term. I don't know if we had anything to do with it, but we sure tried to popularize that, that view of Python 2, didn't we? Yep. And it uh, has a lot of boosts for this pure Python mode that I talked about. So you might say, okay, well, that's interesting that you have this pure Python mode, but why would I really care? Because if the goal is to make it faster, I don't want to run it in pure Python. I want to run it in Cython. So compile it to C and then you know, behind the scenes as part of your, your building of the wheel and all that. Yeah. The reason you might want to do that is, what if you care about MyPy or you care about Rough or you care about Black or all these other tools that are um, Python... Um, Python tooling to understand the Python code, or even PyCharm or VS Code, right? You want it to look at that and, and be able to lint it and format it and understand it, right? So the pure Python mode allows you to do things like um, keep your linting tools, right? So yeah, and also just they um, there's been discussions basically that if if uh, if we had type hints when Cython started, they probably would have used them to start with instead of oh, yeah. their own thing. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. They had no alternative, so they they came up with something. It's just interesting that it kind of came. I mean, I guess it compiles to C, so it makes sense that it had like a really strong C flavor in the way that you wrote it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what else is notable here? Said so there's major NumPy support improvements. So, Cython's worked well with NumPy, but now with Cython three, it gives you the ability to write NumPy ufunks. Don't do enough NumPy to know the why I care about ufunks. But you can write them directly in Cython. So my understanding is basically that um, instead of going through the Python API and layer to work with NumPy, it, go, it drops down to the C layer. And so it's like C to C interoperability when you're doing NumPy within Cython. That's pretty cool. Another thing that's not mentioned in this article that I'm linking to on InfoWorld that's really cool about NumPy, uh, NumPy about Cython is you can remove the gill. You can go no gill. There's a context manager that's just called no gill. So I can say like, with this section, I'm going to do a bunch of code and I don't want the, I want to release the gill for other parallel processing stuff. Mm -hmm. So if multiple bits of code call that into that function and they're being done within threads, they can run truly in parallel on um, hardware, like right on the cores, right? True OS thread parallelism, which is pretty excellent. Now the, the limitation there is that uh, you can't be working with directly with the Python API, right? Like say list or something, because those assume that they're thread safe because of the gill, right? Yeah. But uh, if you're just doing like your own algorithm, right? That, then you can, which is pretty cool. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So uh, well done folks on that. It sounds like a ton of work, but yeah. yeah if and that, you are interested in Cython, check this out. Um, Bye-bye. Ciro in the audience says, uh, Cython is great for H waiting for HPy output. Nice. Mm -hmm. well, right, well that's number one okay which I is would... actually number three. <laughs> oh yeah because it's cython 3 exactly yeah. um so i want to talk about reading code um and i kind of agree so this is an article by eric mathis and he's the dude that wrote uh python crash course um and uh it's, it's on its third edition now it's a pretty good book anyway uh Reading code, an important but seldom discussed skill. And I have to agree with that. I've had um, uh, many discussions in the past about uh, code um, 
oh standard coding standards within teams and i try to have them be lightweight it's better to just teach people how to read code um and so this uh this is i'm mostly bringing this up because i definitely agree that we need to talk about it more uh, especially when teaching people um reading code and reading like we often tell people go out and read uh, the the source code for uh, some popular third party libraries or packages or um or even the the internal the um internal python standard python library but um but it does take some skill to read code so anyway uh this he takes a an example of a, a lottery example or something that, that doesn't really matter but there's a few techniques a couple techniques that he lists that i i really like so there's a um if you just look at code you've got a whole bunch of comments you got a whole bunch of stuff going on often and one of the things he says to start with is ignore the function definitions which is interesting because the function definition is where the name of the function is but just sort of ignore that for now and in he doesn't say this but in his example he said ignore all the comments i mean he took out all the comments in the function definition and just so that you can just see the code and not everything else and i actually i had a a code base once where I had, uh, there were so many comments that I wrote a little script that would strip the comments out so that I could read the code better. Anyway, it does, it's a, you can mentally do it when you, when you're kind of have a, um, when you get used to doing this and also IDEs help, but that's a great way to just sort of simplify what you're looking at to, so that you can mentally see what's going on. Uh, the second technique is to simplify repetitive blocks. Like in the example we're showing, um, there's a couple big print blocks and uh, he, his example says, oh, you, mentally, you can just lump this into print a message. Um, and, and that helps you. And then there's really not that much code left when you're looking at it. And so that, that and he talks about trying to make sense of it. I'm not going to uh, throw any, I'm not going to discuss really what I think of the quality of the code he's showing. It's fine. Um, but, um, and then the, uh, the, the last thing or one of the next to the last is to talk about uh, uh, using an IDE. And so the, I do this a lot with um, many IDEs. I think all of them now. Um, you can like just instead of hiding the uh, the function definition, you can hide everything but the function definition on the on a lot of functions. And if it, especially if you're if you've got a whole bunch of helper functions that are cluttering up the uh, your workspace, you yep. can or in weird places, you can just hide them so that you can see. So like in this example, we've got get winning ticket, check ticket, and make random ticket. Um, and then you, you can kind of see uh, part of one of the functions, but maybe I also want to see like one other function. So if, especially if you're looking at two functions, you can hide the rest of them. It makes it nice. Um, yeah, I it just, usually goes under the, the term of code folding. Yeah, code like folding, that's it. Yeah. But um, then uh, off a great discussion of uh, think about this. Think about that people are going to read your code and try to understand it. So think about that when you're writing code. So writing writing readable code. The, one of the things he didn't bring up that I want to make sure about is so this technique of like hiding the function definition. One of the things, one of the powerful things about this is because we have mentally when we're reading code, at least when I am, and I think this applies to a lot of people, we believe the function name. And we believe the variable name uh, because somebody chose it. But so therefore, it really needs to be accurate. It should be, uh, it's hard to name functions and variables, but sometimes they drift. Sometimes the, like, it'll say like set name or something, but it does a whole bunch of other stuff. So if it does a whole bunch of other stuff, you're going to have to change the name of the function because um, 
if the function's name is not accurate, people are going to fold it up and just assume that's what it does. So uh, you, I would say, uh, I would add to this, uh, make sure your function and variable names are descriptive and change them when the uh, the body of the function changes. So Yeah, and it's interesting. I just had Eric on TalkPython, which is not yet out. So, you know, time travel podcasts. <laughs> he was both there and is not there. It's sort of a, um, an Heisen Eric sort of thing going on there. But a um, couple thoughts on this. I think if it's kind of a big if, and the comments are, are hinting towards this in the live stream as well. If the the naming is super good, I, I kind of prefer the second way, like collapse all the functions and then expand them as you're like, uh, that's not clear what this is doing. Like, let me dive into that. But, you know, print, print header, like, okay, well, we'll just, we're going to assume that that prints the header and just go on, you know, or, yeah. or, you know, things like that, right? Where it's, it's pretty straightforward and there's not a lot of, I wonder what the algorithm does there. It's like, yeah, not too much. Um, so then I like to kind of fold it down, but if, uh, I'm not sure that I would take away the function names, I guess that would be like a, a, a unique IDE plugin where you could say like inline everything. And even if there's repetition, just inline it and just like, you know, and then work backwards as a way to understand, like, don't do that in the main branch, but that'd be, that'd be interesting to do. But kind of in the reverse, a lot of times what you'll end up with is a function that's like super long and poorly structured if you're trying to understand it. If it's if just reading the function name doesn't work, it's usually because it's a big glob of a mess, right? Yeah. Not always, but often. And so the the part where he says, comment out this, instead of having all the steps of like print the winning thing and here's like the seven things it does, you just like have a comment, print the winning thing. What I like to do for that is as I'm trying to understand it, I'll, I'll grab like that section and refactor to a function and say, print the winner, Re grab the other part, refactor, print, print loser, or something along those lines, right? And it yeah. actually will start to have the same effect as like replace it with a comment, but you end up with running code that is still like understandable and consistent as you kind of like play with it. So I'll go through something like big and go, okay, this section, this should be its own little thing with a name. Hey, how about I can make a function that has that name? And the IDE, just a highlight, right click, you know, control T or whatever, um, do it and, and give it the name that you were going to make the comment. And that works a little bit better for me because it doesn't destroy the running code in case you're like, well, but now I need to run it to see what this other part does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you're, you're, I was thinking of other tips. Um, when I, so I learned to program mostly doing a lot of C code. And in there, you've got to, You've got to have if you're writing helper functions, they need to go ahead above the uh, the normal yeah. the other function so that like because it's not declared when it has to be visible to the the function. That's not true with Python. And and yeah. so I like to have the reverse. So if I've like one of the suggestions is to break out if you've got a bunch of helper functions and it's confusing you to put them in another file. I don't actually like to do that, especially if it's only one file using it. I'd rather put it put them below the the function that they're helping. Um, and especially if there's just a couple main uh, functions that are used in this module that are the that are used externally, but those I'd like to put those at the top and then all the helpers at the bottom or something like that. Um, yeah. Um, I, I used to have a, a coding style to do the reverse. And I think it was inherited from C code style, but uh, Python's different. Um, and I, I don't necessarily I, I guess I, I'm not sure what I feel about the uh, hiding the function name, but I guess maybe don't trust the function name. It yeah. Is, oh, verify. Um, yeah. There's a couple of comments like that. David Poole says, 
a quote I once read is if the code and comments disagree, both are wrong. It's kind of similar yeah. to the function names, as well as given sufficient time, the code and the comments, uh, maybe function names as well, will start to lie, which is interesting there. What, and I also see that people are like more reluctant to change somebody else's comment than they are to change their code. And I'm like, you got to get over that. If the comment's wrong, go feel free to change it. That's that's a perfectly fine refactoring. So anyway, yeah, let's move to yeah, the next absolutely. one. I, I totally agree with you about putting the, the most sort of the organizing, coordinating high-level stuff first. Um, you know, maybe what would be in the Dunder, if, if name, Dunder name equals Dunder main, whatever that is, make that a function and put it at the top. I, I totally agree that that's the way to go. Yeah, <clears throat> cool. All right, next, how about another release? This time, something very small with lots of, <laughs> lots of effort. So this is the one that I was thinking that comes from Matt uh, Trentini. And let me pull it up because it has some good stats in it. It says, after 10 months, 1,000 mainline commits and a over 100 contributors, we have a new version of MicroPython. So thank you, Matt, for sending that into us. That's a pretty big release, 100 contributors. And so the, the, the reason I brought that up is the GitHub announcement for the release doesn't point out like how big of a release this was, like almost a year's worth of work. So MicroPython, the one that runs on embedded devices, not not phones, but like incredibly small and cheap devices, you know, like five, $10 chips. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome that you can run Python there, right? And so MicroPython and CircuitPython are, you know, similar projects, one forked from the other, I believe, but they've deviated a little bit. CircuitPython being more beginner educational friendly, MicroPython being more production device, you know, creating devices to do actual jobs type of uh, friendly, um, but I think they're working a lot together. There's been a lot of merging back, so that's that's pretty cool. So this release of MicroPython introduces a lightweight package manager called MIP instead of PIP. You've got MIP. Uh, it uses a custom protocol to query and install packages that's optimized for embedded systems. So that's pretty cool. It's easier to get packages involved. It's like if you've done MicroPython stuff before, it's not as easy as just pip install this thing. Right? It's a little bit a little bit trickier than that. Also, the core runtime uh, and built-in types have been compressed to um, only including C-level type structs for uh, as much as possible. So that's shrunken the size of it, not by a lot, but it's so small that you know losing kilobytes actually makes a difference, which is a pretty interesting way to think about it because we don't worry about the size varying by kilobytes in CPython. Right. And then there's a bunch of like small changes like Bluetooth low energy changes, SSL settings. By the way, SSL is way harder over there than you would imagine it would be. There's a bunch of different ports like the ESP32 is the one that I've worked with. And so for each of the different ports that it goes through, there's sort of a summary of like, how has it changed for that one? And I'd also like to just remind people like, while this is awesome for embedded devices, you might think, ah, I don't, use, I don't do, you know, small chip programming so it doesn't matter to me you also might be interested in PyScript, right oh, yeah. and so one of the things that they're trying to do is uh, work to get MicroPython to be one of the possible foundations the runtimes in um, WebAssembly for PyScript. and when this thing is 100k or 75k whatever it is all of a sudden you can run PyScript in the browser nearly on par with JavaScript right traditional PyScript used uh, the full uh, C Python, at least the as much as you can get to WebAssembly, which has meant a 10 meg download and then in the browser I had to parse and start up that whole thing. If that goes to MicroPython, 
that becomes incredibly fast to download 75k that's like javascript wow size right so so all these changes are not just like don't think oh i don't do these device this, this embedded device programming so it's not for me it, it may well be for all of us soon instead of javascript which is very exciting so there are many changes like Ryan, see the scroll bar size as I'm going through this list. <laughs> I am not going to go through them, but if you care, I just want to point out, like there's a massive new release of MicroPython. You can go and see what's changed for the different uh, ports. And then in the core, right, like there's just, you know, almost, I don't know how many pages that is, but it's many, many, many pages. So check out the linked release notes from the MicroPython team. Congrats to them as well, Damien George and others. Yeah, this is really cool. I, I love to yeah. see that, that basically also that the, uh, project is continuing and um, we all benefit from uh, Python enabled devices and stuff and people can invent new things uh, better. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, the internet of things being in Python is better than having a different language. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Also just want to, you know, sort of a time travel sort of thing as well as I think Matt sent this over quite a while ago and it's been sort of on our list and I finally pulled it out of our list and made it a topic. So this is from end of April. It's a couple months old. Um, but still, you know, almost a year's worth of work is worth celebrating, even if it's, you know, a couple months later. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Um, ready for the last, our last topic. Yeah. Bring it on. Um, I wanted to just, so I, I'm, uh, I don't, I get, I shouldn't even, uh, qualify this. I am a, I was going to say I'm not a sucker for listicles, but I kind of am. So, um, this is an article called advanced Python tips for development, but when I was reading it, so this is by, uh, Schofield, Iden, Idahen. Um, and when I was reading it, there's 15 tips and some of them don't really seem that advanced. Like the top one, use list comprehensions. Okay. You should do that. But there's a few that I wanted to point out that I thought were that I just wanted reminders of to use it more often. Um, so list comprehensions are awesome. And, and I, f I kind of forget that they aren't obvious to people now because I've been using them for so long. So they're great. But one of the things, the next tip, so, so tip one is use list comprehensions. Tip two is uh, leverage generator expressions for memory efficiency. And I don't use generator expressions enough, and I think I should. And one of the cool things about this article is it shows side by side a list comprehension and a generator expression. And they look identical, except for there's brackets versus uh, um, parentheses. So parentheses, yeah, parens. And, uh, and I, I kind of forget about generator expressions. So generator expressions, um, are list comprehensions not generators? I thought they were. No. They're no. Not. Okay. Well, one com the the list compression executes it all into memory, and then the the generator one you have to start you know iterating through it to, to create it. Which it's cool that they're so similar, but I'm sure it's caused unknown, untold amounts of yeah of, uh, challenges for people to go. They look the same. You can do both. It doesn't seem to matter until it really matters. You know. Yeah, and and also it's not. I mean, you can when you get used to list comprehensions, generator expressions kind of looks like a tuple expression, but it's not. yeah. Um, well, and then you put curly braces on it, and it becomes a set comprehension. Yeah, uh, the grant reminded us that. Don't forget yeah, set yeah, comprehensions. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's hop down. Uh, the enumerate function. This is just take advantage of enumerate function. This is just remember to teach people that are coming from C or other other uh, for I equals one to 10 sort of languages that uh, enumerates around. So if you need the index, also use enumerate. Um, don't be a dork and 
get the length of a list. <laughs> Encounter equals one. Fry equals one to length wow. of the list. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, don't exactly. do that. Also, enumerate can, if you need uh, if you need it to be a, so enumerate does zero through whatever. If you need it to be one through whatever, you can give it a start. Um, enumerate has takes a starting point, so you can make it start at one if you need it. Right. Uh, if you're working with indexes, the default is good. But if you're trying to print thing one, thing two, thing three, then start equals one is the way to go. Instead yeah. of or if you're one. using it to like get into some other data structure or something. Anyway, uh, I'm going to hop down to um, so that's true. Hop down to five, which is the zip function, and I just so zip is great for parallel uh, iterating through parallel lists, and you can do more than. This is showing uh, name and age is two different lists and uh, going through them. I my my tip is just practice this several times and unfrequently if you're if you need it because this is a, this was a hard one to pound into my brain as to to remember how zip works because it's not that confusing but it's tripped me up for some reason and it's not so it you'll take a, several lists and it just makes if you zip them uh, you end up with a what is it a list of tuples or some sort of iterable I don't know if it's an actual list an iterable of tuples that you can pull out different parts of it or something and and then you can in this example it says for name last age so that's unpacking it after you get it and it works great i just always forget to use it so a uh, good reminder um and then i'm now i'm going to jump down to my 12 one of the things 12 but uh eight is kind of funny because it's a formatting problem but anyway use counters counters are good uh 12 is what is 12 oh one of the things uh 11 is decorate, use decorate, decorate functions with static method and class method. I just hardly ever do this. Um, do you use static method or class method that much, Michael? Uh, uh, yeah, quite a bit, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, and I guess it's uh, one of the, the neat things. Of, yeah, anyway, I just don't use it much. I'll, maybe I'll uh, try to explore where I can use it more often. Uh, the number 12 is use slots to re reduce memory usage. and um, I kind of forget to do this too. So this is a good reminder to use slots when you're, um, and this is, is great, especially if you, if you know ahead of time, what, you know, your, your classes aren't going to add new, new data as it goes on, or it's not going to be dynamically generating new fields. Yeah. yeah. And I guess here I just use the adders. Uh, <laughs> with, um, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out that slots don't just reduce memory. They also make attribute access faster. So like thing.field, getting and getting and setting that value is also faster with slots. Okay. Yeah, that is yeah. It's good to remember. Anyway, um, some, some fun tips. Um, uh, 14, use PyTest. It says use unit test or PyTest. Ignore the first part. Use PyTest. <laughs> <laughs> And, and there's it's a typo there. Is that what you're saying? There's a, there's some typos. So use unit test or take out the unit test or, and also it says for unit testing, just, just automated testing, just for all your automated testing, not just unit test. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, those are our topics. Uh, do you want to talk about some extras, Michael? I do have some. So I feel like Brian, it's not time for a joke yet, but there's, there's a pretty good joke on that page. We might have to come back to. What well, do you want to explore it now? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> not yet not yet we can do it later. okay <laughs> let's do it later all right so you know people have different faces brian you know sometimes you got your sort of like neutral face you got your happy face you got your sad face how about your hugging face what's your hugging face look like so 
there's this project created by Augustine. Let me pull it up here. The source code's linked at the bottom by Augustine Picures or Agus, as his friends call him. Sent in, hey, I was looking to play with the Hugging Face API. And so I'm like, well, what could I work with? What if I turn um, a large language model or semantic search loose on Talk Python to me in their transcripts? That's cool, huh? Yeah. So he created this project. You got to go and get a free Hugging Face API token because it uses Hugging Face. So I was joking around. But then it says you can ask a question. For example, what's my advanced options? Oh, yeah, I can see how many things I could get back. Let's make that 10. Focus, folks. Come on. So you can go things and say, who uses MicroPython in production, for example? All right, I can type that into the search field, and then I can say submit. And sometimes it takes a second, sometimes it's pretty quick, but we're going to see what we get as a little running character. Although they can't choose their sport. It's like rowing, and then swimming, and then it's running, and then it's biking. That's well, what the light icon. Well, Here we go. A, it's like a decathlon. I guess you're right. And so here comes the answer back. It says, over on TalkPython, you should check out PyScript powered by MicroPython and MicroPython plus CircuitPython. You might be thinking, well, it's just searching titles, but then empowering developers by embedding Python by Nina Zakarenko. And then there's a weird one by Brian called 30 Amazing Python Projects and, and so on, or even the year in review. Isn't that cool? That is neat. So if you want to play with this stuff, either because you want to build a thing like this for something else, or you want to just go like ask questions about TalkPython um, you can go and check out this app. The source code is linked at the bottom. So I guess an, another comment that maybe it's a good idea to have uh, some transcripts for people to be able to use as search. Yeah, exactly. You, you, we didn't have transcripts. We wouldn't be able to do these, this cool project, right? So, yeah. yeah, excellent. So that's one. And yeah, that's that's it for me for my extras. You got any? Um, yeah, one, I just wanted to, to um, I guess, uh, remind people that Python People is a thing. Uh, Python People is a new podcast, and episode three is out with the Brett Cannon. Um, and the one of the comments, I one of the quotes from him is, I came for the language, but I stayed for the community. We explore that, and uh, what was the situation when he when he talked about that? And um, and we talked about a whole bunch of stuff, like what is the meaning of backbaking and toque, um, things like that. So check it out. Yeah. Um, then, oh, <laughs> nice. Um, I, I had forgotten to, uh, for people listening, I had uh, forgotten to actually show the uh, the episode on the I screen. could go back and search Talk Python again for this and see if we find Python people. You would find a ton of Brett Cannon over there, and we have an episode for him coming up very soon. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but no, I switched it over to yours. Uh, <laughs> next, I, I didn't, there's a, oh, that's the wrong thing. Oh, um, oh. I deleted the thing I wanted to talk about. So I guess that's it from extras for me. It's gone from the internet. It is gone. So um, I will have a, a joke for us. Okay. Well, but let's before, before we do the joke, we didn't do any sponsors. One of the sponsors, of course, is Python people or it's, it's mm -hmm. us, but I'd like people to check it out. We have like maybe three listeners so far. No, it's bigger than that, but I'd like it to grow. Um, I also want to, to give a shout out to uh, everybody on Patreon. So um, if you go to any of Python Bytes pages, especially ones without any advertising, like today's or episode 343, um, you can see Become a Patreon and you can uh, click on it and uh, become a member and help support the show for a buck. That's great. I also wanted to give a shout out to all of the amazing courses at Talk Python Training. Michael has done a great job, plus pulling in uh, amazing other people to, to teach courses like me. Uh, 
at Talk Python Training. There's some great stuff, so check it out. Now we can do yeah, a job. Yeah, I got some uh, new new um, courses coming from some really awesome people. All right, on to the joke. On to the joke. So this one is a meme somebody put together. Through, well, I have, I have two jokes here, then we can even do the third joke that you, you had on screen a little bit ago. So HTMX, if you all are familiar with HTMX, if you're not, you should definitely check out our HTMX and Flask course. This thing is so awesome. I had so much fun learning it, and I'm like, where is the next project that I can use HTMX on? Because it's great. The idea with HTMX is instead of doing JavaScript, you just write attributes, and then that magically through HTMX gets turned into server calls. Like if I need to rebuild a, a table, as somebody interacts with some other part of the page, that could just be done on the server and just send little fragments back. It's incredible, right? So it means you don't have to write JavaScript. So the joke is, <laughs> there's, the, there's a, a guy that's back in dev, and then this other dude, that's HTMX says, HTMX says, look at me, look at me back in dev. You're full stack now, you're full stack. Stand up for yourself, man. Don't let those, don't, don't feel like you can only write it back in code. You're full stack now, HTMX. <laughs> Isn't that good? Yeah. <laughs> The other joke before we get to the one that you had on the page is what what is happening to Twitter? What like how did a child try to try to rebrand this? It is so incredibly bad. No, it, it's like so, branded by oh a high school God. band. Dude, um, it's so bad. Let's let's call so, ourselves X. That'd be so cool, man. Yeah, man. And so, like for example, people might be thinking, I go, you're overreacting. They they tried to take the Twitter logo down and replace it with an X, and then the police came and stopped them because they didn't have the Twitter employees doing it, didn't have a permit to drive a crane around downtown San Francisco. So oh, wow. it's like half the Twitter logo is like half removed. <laughs> there's no X, nor is there Twitter. Uh, it says tweet. I'm on Twitter.com, but there's an X. But, uh, you know, sometimes... Like, like, what do you call these? Are there supposed to be X's? You know, usually X's is oh yeah, Are kind they... of a bad. I mean, it's just like and if you if you share it, another one, is it a reX? Yes, oh. exactly. And there's um, there's some random person who has X as a handle on Twitter. They're like, uh, what's going on? I'm, am I gonna be like Twitter? You know, they uh, I heard that they don't. I don't know for sure on this one, but they don't seem to have the intellectual property rights to like trademark. The letter X. Well, you can't. <laughs> and, I know. And this X looks like, um, I think the X11 logo. If you go look at that, uh, I think that was the one. It's like, it's no, like a no. thick right slanty versus a, a, a thin left slanty, which is, yeah, um, you know, one's hollow, one's solid. Other than that, they're kind of. Anyway, there's. Well, no, the, that's sort the, of a meta joke. On the good side. Current employees and those that are laid off are all ex-employees now. <laughs> exactly. Look at all the people that work for Twitter now. They're they're all ex-employees. Uh, <laughs> all right. So that was just because this came from Twitter. I'm gonna open up like, wow, this is it's, getting it's, it's getting janky. X news, so it has to be part of our extras. <laughs> it absolutely does. All right. Do you want to just give a quick shout out to what was on that page before? Um. So what were you referring to? The only valid measurement of code quality. Oh, the WTFs yeah. per minute. Okay. Yeah. WTFs per minute. It's true. Oh, that's the, yeah. You need the full one. Oh, wow. Oh, you shows, lost it now. Shows, it was an ad. It, it was an ad. Yeah. Okay. It was a code review and behind the, the door, you could just hear WTF. What WTF? <laughs> and the, the good code only had a couple. The bad code was just like <laughs> overwhelmed with them. That was the joke. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, this episode was no joke. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, and thanks everybody for showing up at a weird time. I really appreciate it. Um, it's great. So yeah, talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.